Since recording this episode with Joe, she's been upgraded to a CBE by the Queen, no less. An unbelievable achievement. So congratulations to you, Joe. Find that thing that really makes you tick. It doesn't always have to be a business, but just find the thing that makes you really fulfilled. Don't be scared of the discipline that needs to go around that creativity, because otherwise, if all of us were just being creative without any discipline, it would be a very different place. And the last thing is go find the opportunity. And actually, as society, I believe our responsibility to the next generation is to provide those opportunities for them. A home in Chelsea is a long way from the council house in Kent where she grew up. Today's secret leader is Joe Malone, MBE, founder of Joe Loves. For avoidance of confusion, I'm speaking to the flesh and bones and brilliant mind of Joe Malone, MBE, not the scented candles she makes. Of all the guests we've had the wonderful fortune to interview, Joe has the biggest reputation preceding her, but don't worry, it's entirely positive. And in the lead up to this interview, whether sharing this with a guest such as King's founder and CEO Ricardo Zacconi or any of my friends, everyone says the same thing. Oh, wow. I love her. She is well known for being authentic and inspiring, a true hero to young entrepreneurs everywhere. So, Joe, no pressure today, but I'm certainly excited to hear your story. So before we get into it, let's get straight into a quick fire round. How do you feel about that? I'm nervous because I've seen the questions. Okay, well, we'll get straight into it then. She's got them all prepared, obviously. So candles or perfumes? And yes, you do have to pick before you try and get out of it. I'm going to have to pick perfume. Okay. So for any candle lovers out there, now you know you've bought the wrong products, so you're going to have to diversify immediately. If you could only have one of these senses, would you have your sense of hearing or sense of smell? I struggled over that one, but sense of smell, definitely, because I'm, I'm, my nickname is Bloodhound in our house. I can sniff out anything, so sense of smell. And I guess you'd be able to learn lip reading anyway, and this interview would carry on just fine. Bexley Heath or Chelsea? Chelsea. It's weird. I Sorry, wasn't expecting Bexley. that. Yeah, it's odd. Uh, motherhood or entrepreneurship? Okay, that one I can't because I adore being a mum. But I think actually mothers are entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs need motherhood. You know, the the ability to be able to spin plates and do everything. So I think they're one in the same. Okay, if it makes you feel better, I'm yet to actually get a straight answer out of a single guest on that one, unsurprisingly. But I will carry on trying until I get one person caught out on it. So, Joe, let's get you started. You were the elder of two girls and you were born in 1963, not that we're counting, in Bexley Heath. Can you share what your upbringing was like with us, please? My upbringing was... I thought everybody had the same upbringing. We, we grew up on a council estate. My dad at the time was working for a double glazing company. And my mum was a manicurist at Revlon. And it was very much a hand-to-mouth existence. It was a little two up, two down. And as brilliant and as wonderful as my parents were, I was the adult from the age of 11. So it was up to me to make sure there was a meal in the fridge, to make sure the rent was paid. In it. And we had gas and electric meters under the stairs. And I would save that we used to call them, you know, shilling or two bob. I would make sure if I ever found one, I would hide them in the house. So there was always gas or electric. Smart and savvy from a young age. You talk in your book about your parents' marriage and dealing with your mother's depression. Of course, also leaving school from a really young age after she had a stroke. But then you went to work for her, learning how to mix creams. What was that whole experience like? uh, Well, I was the carer. Yeah, I I did look after my mum. Is that that why from the age of 11 you mentioned growing up at that early stage? I was definitely the 
the adult of the family. I mean, just going back just a bit, first of all, my dad was a brilliant artist, so I would go, and I loved going to the markets with him and going selling paintings. He was also a magician, so I was the magician's assistant. So I learned entertainment, and he was also a huge gambler, so I knew how to read marked cards from the age of eight or nine. I could see what was in everyone's hand. But, you know, nothing is ever wasted in life, and as an entrepreneur, you think of that. Going back to my mum now, so it was an eclectic childhood, and she was very, 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 very poorly, and I was the carer and had to look after her. Otherwise, she was going to be put into a hospital. My dad had disappeared with some pretty girl. And my sister and I were going to be put into care. And I managed to talk, I don't know how I did it, social services and everybody else around, saying that there was an adult in the background and don't worry, they would appear any minute. Of course, they never did because there never was. And it was me. And I managed to keep us all together as a family. And I'd watched my mum make face creams over the years. And because I'm horribly dyslexic, my memory is a very important part of who I am. And I'd memorised everything that she'd done. So I was able to just take out all the plastic jugs and everything. I mean, still to this day, I don't use a formulation to ever make anything. And I would just sit there and make the face creams, put them into pots and go up to London and sell them. But um, I thought everybody lived like that. So what what was the experience like when your father left and your mum, who had this disability, realistically, what was that like for you and your sister? Were you having to look after your sister as well? What's that relationship been like as you grew up into your 20s? Yeah, I, I mean, I put her through school. And the great thing about where we lived, though, there was a community. So everyone was your aunt, like Auntie Maureen, Auntie Sheila, Auntie May. And they would all bring in like a casserole or a shepherd's pie. You know, everybody looked after each other when we grew up. So I never felt alone. I never felt isolated. I always felt there was someone close by if I needed them. I mean, my mum, she had a stroke sort of later on in life, but she had a terrible breakdown. And this wonderful, incredible, clever woman just sat there and said nothing for months and months on end. So, but again, you know, when you're in that situation, you either sink or swim. What, what was I going to do? So I put my sister through school And I became really her mother. And as the years went on, and it was funny, when life resumed its normality, which it often does, you know, my mum got better and then she wanted to become mum again and run the house. It was strained. It was always a very strained relationship. And we loved each other desperately. But I think the roles got muddled. What age were you when you left school? 14, 15. I was about 14 and a half. I never finished school. I never did the last day. I don't ever remember doing a GCSE. In fact, I know I didn't. And I couldn't see the point in continuing to um, be at school because I knew how to make money and run a business. How often were you going into London to sell these creams? Probably once every two weeks. I would take my mum's shopping trolley, fill it with face creams, go up to London. She had a little flat that she would rent when she was well enough. And the the lady who was so kind allowed me to sell the face creams. But it was enough to feed our family and uh, pay the bills. And do you not feel like looking back, I guess, on a reflective sense, do you feel like you missed out on anything particularly in that experience? Or do you think that actually starting work so young was everything? I've never felt in my life that life has done me bad in any day of my life. So I've looked at it as to what it gave me, not what it took away. And yeah, of course it did. I mean, I I think I was more of a child when I was in my 20s, when I was just married than I was when I was, you know, my young teenage years. But it gave me so much more. I had this eclectic, creative childhood that made me who I am today. It's funny because when you're growing up, 
uh, women mature so much faster than men. And, you know, I guess until you're about 30, they always complain that you're so bloody immature. And I can't even imagine what you must have been like to date in your early 20s, uh, already putting your sister through school, etc. Every man you must have met must have felt like an absolute child. I didn't have lots of boyfriends. I had a couple. And I think I was looking for somebody much older all the time. I, I, yeah, I didn't have lots of boyfriends and I, that didn't sort of bother me. I didn't, didn't feel people around me were immature at all. Fair enough. And then you moved into London and you got a, a wide range of experience in different jobs. So as I understand it, you swept floors in a high-end grocer. You did dog sitting. You was here. It was here. What do you mean? It was right. Well, okay. This so store, it, this, this, this plot of land. So to no, speak. this very store. I'll, I'll tell you that in a minute. Yeah. Okay, go for it. But yeah, you were also working in a florist, and you know all these different jobs. The point of sharing it is to prove that you're a normal person, yeah. and the entrepreneurship can come at any times, and often through having normal experiences along the way. But tell us a little bit about this store that we're sitting in right now in Belgravia. So my very first job was in a florist and it was just down on the corner where Tom Tom's is now, the um, little coffee shop. And that was my first job. I was there for about six, seven months and one very hot summer's day. I'd gone to the market to get the flowers and I'd made a mess on the front and the manageress screamed and shouted at me. So I picked up the bucket of water and I threw it over her very stupidly. I've apologised all through my life and she still is cross with me. But anyway, don't blame her. And I was marched up here you'd be a good activist at peter you just <laughs> fill them up with blood and throw them on people instead no i wouldn't anyway so i was marched up here and came into to work in this shop and it was a delicatessen owned by the same man justin de blank and i came to work here at this very shop this used to be the kitchens that we're sitting in now and i would sweep the floors clean the fridges i mean i was the the junior so i'd run up and down the stairs and bring the salads it was the first time i'd seen avocados being eaten by but I thought they were used for face masks I never realized that they you could actually eat them coronation chicken chocolate refrigerator cake I mean just everything and things have gone the other way now I didn't know you could use them as face masks (laughs) (laughs) well I still use them as face masks avocado but it was a great sort of I really fell in love with being a shopkeeper here and there was the greengrocer there was the butcher and I would learn anything. I'd ask question after question after question. So, yeah, this was my first job. And, yes, I swept the floors and cleaned the toilets and did all those things, made the tea. Belgravia is one of the most affluent places in Britain, let alone London, which, of course, in itself is highly affluent in comparison to other parts of Britain. But I guess is that comparison of Bexley Heath to here what's attracted you? I mean, as that girl coming from Bexley Heath to this specific spot, which seems to be an area you've gravitated towards with your shops quite often. Do you think that's had some sort of emotional impact at the time that stayed with you? I've never thought about that. No, I just think I took the job that was going to pay me a salary. And this is where I landed. I mean, that's, it's funny in life, isn't it, where you're thrown into, often that's where you're gravitate, you're, you're probably right, gravitate back to. Mm. And it was the market that I understood and I learned and I had all sort of happy memories here. So maybe that was why. But it wasn't on purpose, no. You're probably lucky you didn't just uh, get your first job in Tottenham because trying to open a Joe Malone candle shop in Tottenham might have been quite difficult. I would have given it a good shot. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure you would have given it a good shot. Okay, it's often said you shouldn't go into business with your family. Mm. But you did break that rule and you did start a business with your mum, which didn't go well. To help our audience understand some of the ups and downs that built your character along the way, can you actually share the story here, please? 
Well, it was good for a long period of time. And I didn't go into business with her. I start, I, it was her business. And I went to work, you know, just like the, the kid in a family and, and you go in and you learn the ropes. And she taught me, my mum taught me so much in my life. But I think as we both started to grow and I started to become much more confident, it was very difficult for me to just go back to being the young junior again because I was running a business. And so I think there was that point at which I, th- I was doing faces. There's a point at which I write about in the book where she throws a face cream at me. I mean, I really, I really struggled about putting that in the book, but I thought, you know what, I want people to know the truth and it's okay when those things happen. You know, it's emotions were running high. Maybe she was just trying to rejuvenate you and you looked tired. And... <laughs> no, she was, <laughs> she was crossing me. But it landed right the way across my face, I remember. And I just knew that was the point at which it was time for me to move on. And I, I really, I found that my sense of smell was becoming more and more predominant. And it hadn't really played a role up until that point. And I wanted to see what I could do on my own. Yeah, so one of the things I want to come on to uh, now is, so you're an 18, 19-year-old, um, you've been developing, you know, a sense of maturity from a super young age, you've gone to work in a business, you put your sister through education, and all the while you have actually picked up on something quite rare that very few people get a chance to have in their lifetime, which is a natural expertise, which is your sense of smell. Mm. And you've just touched on it with the episode with the face cream. But can you explain, just in case anyone that's listening has this secret superpower. What does it feel like when you notice that perhaps you have a heightened sense, regardless of what that sense is, a heightened sense that your peers don't? Do you compare notes to other people? Did you walk around asking, can you smell this? Or do you just knew? No, no, I, I thought everyone could smell the same. I think because I'm dyslexic, what life takes away with one hand, it'll give you back it with another. And my sense of smell was just I thought everybody could smell the things that I could. I mean, I would be able to, when she was making face creams and the oils were overheating, I could smell if the almond oil was too hot. And I would say, no, 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 you can't, you can't add it just yet because it's much too hot, mum. No, 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 it's fine, it's fine. And sure enough, when we put the temperature gauge, I would tell if the dog was going to be sick, I could tell if it was ill. I mean, there was just hundreds of things that I could smell. And I thought everybody could do that. So I would never question it. Even now, it is that sense that I really trust that. So it's almost like a best friend. I would really trust my sense of smell probably above other senses. But I don't know why. But life gave me, you know, an incredible nose. Can you smell where I've come from today? (laughs) I haven't got that close yet. (laughs) (laughs) You should probably stay then. Stay where you are. Okay, so, well, I mean, you you had your sense of smell. You, You basically decided to put that into an actual business, a career. Yeah, I started my first skincare clinic. We had a tiny little apartment, Gary and I, that we had rented. We were just young sort of newlyweds. He was in the building industry, worked for Higson Hill as a building surveyor. We started out with this tiny little dream, rented an apartment, didn't have any money for curtains or furniture, and we rented it for a year. And we decided that if after a year it didn't work out, then we'd have to rethink. Started with 20 face clients, and they would climb three flights of stairs, come and have their faces done, and as they left, I would give them a little bottle of bathol. And how did that develop into the Joe Malone London brand? Well, it just grew and grew and grew. It was word of mouth. So I went from there within probably five to six years. I had opened my first little shop in Walton Street, number 154. And within five years of that, I'd sold to the biggest uh, cosmetic giant in the world, which was Estee Lauder. 
that's pretty much the simplest way I've ever heard someone describe the growth of their business. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So can you take us through the journey of actually building up that brand? Did you even have discussions on whether you'd name it after yourself, if you'd name it after an object? How did you decide on the names of the different products? You know, take us through a bit of a brand based journey. So the brand was already to, you know, together, I'd already created the first probably six fragrances. And it was, you know, they came to see Joe Malone. So that was sort of a natural. Finding the first shop was a big emotional thing for me Gary by that point Gary had left his job with Higgs and Hill and we were sort of side by side learning how to be shopkeepers together we opened our first shop in October 1994 and we were literally the night before putting bottles on the shelves and we were thinking you know what's going to happen tomorrow and that first morning as we opened the doors a man walked in and offered me a million dollars to sell the company that day it was an American guy and uh, we so hadn't that's, even that's closed. That's the thing about um, sound even... recordings. You didn't see my face. <laughs> <laughs> but that was one true. of pure shock. <laughs> he didn't. Uh, we weren't even open for 24 hours. He offered me a million dollars to sell the company that day and walk away. And I never saw him again. I said, thank you very much, but no, thank you. And it was either it was either a journalist after a story. It was either the real thing mm. or somebody playing a horrible joke. But either way, it didn't tempt me for one second, not one second. During that time, you know, opening that first little shop, we went in the first five years, we would go from week to week, month to month, and we would watch our takings go higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. The first Christmas, we turned over our first million. 
on Christmas Eve, two hours before we were about to shut the shop. That is £364 short of our first million. We didn't open that shop with no sort of market to start. The face clinic had been the foundation for that business. So what people don't see is the five to ten years of, of grafting and building. Nobody opens a shop with a product and it just does that. It's, it's all those foundations that you lay. And did you already have demand and people nagging you during the process? Oh my of, God. Well, yeah. that's why we had the shop. Sure. Because we, I couldn't cope with making it at my kitchen sink with my plastic jugs any longer. So for me, that was a huge emotional shift going into having somebody manufacture for you. And I was just like a tiger with her cubs, you know. I'd, it's not strong enough. I don't like the texture of it. I don't like the top on the bottle. It was all kinds of... Things. I was actually going to ask this. Do you feel like you're a good teacher or are you so obsessive? Because you know, it's a difficult one. It's, it's scent and you're the person with the nose. So it must be so hard, you know, to encourage other people to do it your way. But to do it right, I don't it must want, be very I know, hard. I don't want someone to do it my way. I still, to this day, I create all the fragrances that bear my little red dot. And my last fragrance with Jo Malone was Pomegranate Noir. So up until then, so after that, I've not created any of those fragrances for Jo Malone since. But I don't want someone to create like me. I want them to create... That doesn't make people happy. What makes people happy is being true to who you really are. And of course, all my fragrances are about my memories and my thought process and my means of communication what I want them to learn from me is to find that thing that really makes you happy and where you're really creative because that's what will bring you fulfillment in your life I guess one thing I'm super interested in then is how did you employ people over that period was it part of your employment test figuring out how well they can smell is there like a scent test or was that just not necessary I love your questions. They're, well, they're, they're coming to me on no, the spot because great. it is fascinating when you speak to someone with that um, with that expertise, and it must be it must be hard to match that on a on a CV. Well, we never tested their. I never tested their noses because they weren't creating fragrance, so they were selling. I mean, like everybody goes through their the the pod in a business where they look at the fragrances, and I know the ones that have got a really good strong sense of smell, and it's normally the people with great memories which, you know, you can identify. But I think I've met anyone that's come through, I'm just trying to think now, who haven't been able to smell it at some point. But they weren't creating fragrances. They were selling the fragrances that I had created. Have you ever read the book Perfume by yeah, Patrick Siskind? Yeah, that's the first. I read that when I was 18 and so I just remember it. There, there is a part in that book, you know, when he's in the cave, I thought, I know exactly what he's smelling. And you could smell the deeper you went the wetter the cave became. That's one of the best books I've ever read. And it was also one, I think, maybe the first book I ever read that was capable of describing a sense. Because mm. it was so over the top, well described in every single page. Really gave you an idea of what it must be like to have a heightened sense. And that must be, you must have read that and felt like this sort of semi-autobiography, but hopefully not too much. No, Don't well, even uh, murder anyone, absolutely. <laughs> uh, we'll move on from that point then. So... You uh, you said you were running the company and at this point you'd got a huge fan base. So you had uh, Maloniacs. I've never heard that before. Um, there are but we had, we turns had, out. Um, are there really? Yeah. So we had a lot of fans. They're normal, don't worry. It's we okay. had, <laughs> well, some of them. We had a, a just a huge following and everything I created would sell and the, the press were, I mean, the press were incredible. And way back then, you didn't have that moment where you could post something on social media. That didn't exist. You had to do your press release, out it would go with the product. You sit there and wait. I mean, it was a whole, a whole different experience. 
Um, uh, but the press were incredible. They just supported and supported and supported. And the growth of that business was because the story became more and more powerful as each day went on. And how did you meet the people that ended up buying your company? They walked into Wharton Street one day and approached me, I think, probably three years into running the business. At the time, I was enjoying being a shopkeeper. I was flattered, but I didn't necessarily think it was the right thing for me. But it wasn't until I met Leonard Lauder, who was Estee Lauder's son, and I went and had breakfast with him in his apartment in New York. And I sat with this man who, you know, is probably one of the most powerful men in the world in cosmetics, and he was just normal. We were sat and had a cup of tea together and talked about what it was to build a business from scratch. And I, I knew he understood that entrepreneurial heart. So for me, I was looking for three things at that point. I was looking for funding, obviously, because we were coming to a point where we couldn't grow the business anymore. I was looking for distribution, somebody that had the power to get it all over because it wasn't just about the funding and I wanted someone with heart who really understood a business and that he had all three. Did you ever go into a competitive process or was it just you met someone you really felt like you connected and the rest was history? We had lots of approaches, lots of people that wanted to buy franchises, lots of people that wanted to back the business but you know that feeling in I, th- I think sometimes in business you get that real gut feeling and when you know something's right don't keep questioning it because you'll eventually talk yourself out of it. And I'd never talk myself out of it. And there wasn't a competitive process. I didn't want that. I wanted a really great relationship. And, you know, the deal was put together fairly quickly. And can you remember what kind of volumes you were doing at the time? I mean, how many candles, how many, you know, perfumes? We, it, was a he- it was a healthy business. I'm not going to talk about figures. And, uh, and I also won't talk about how much we sold for either. But other than that... No, I figured that much. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask that. But no, but I didn't mean... I don't think it's got anyone else's business but mine and my no, bank but, manager. But I didn't mean um, in terms of pounds. I meant in terms of units. Was it yeah, millions of candles? Or? It was... No, it wasn't millions of candles, but it was a really good, healthy business. And by that point, we were in New York City and Bergdorf Goodman. We were in several states. We had a, a little shop, I think, in Paris... And so we were, you know, we were we were doing a really, really great job. But I think it's a sign of success when you say, "I think we were in Paris," which means I, you, I can't you knew remember you were, whether but... it was. Well, no, I couldn't. I can't, it wasn't a, a freestanding store, but I can't remember whether we'd opened in Paris in a department store before or after. Lord, I think we were in there. And after you sold the company, I guess that was the first time for a while you'd had a boss. What, what did it sort of feel like to have like, an employer, so to speak? I've never felt like I've had a boss Uh, and I really haven't and I didn't feel that they were just the greatest family and company to work with and they wanted me just to continue to do what I did and that's and that's what I did I could feel the the discipline of a a bigger company but I don't think that's a bad thing to feel that you know because with it came other responsibilities and other things that I had to do and I was still only 38 39 years old so I had still had a lot to learn and I wasn't frightened. I was never called into an office and put on a graph and told me that I wasn't performing. I mean, nobody did that to me. Well, so. this is what I was going to ask, because you mentioned um, quite a lot that you were heavily dyslexic. And then you're going into an international company, which probably, you know, so many processes, lots of spreadsheets, lots of graphs, etc. Do they ever try and take you into management meetings and you do that kind of vibe with you at all? <laughs> I can remember doing a few. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to put a pinstripe suit on so I feel like I'm businessy. And my dyslexia is pretty bad and I couldn't tell where I was at the end of the day they bought my company because of who I was not for who they wanted me to be 
And I realised I did a couple of those and I realised that I just actually there were much more competent people in my company and in theirs that could do that job. They needed me to do what I did. And so I made the decision that I wouldn't put a pinstripe suit. I don't think I've worn a pinstripe suit since. No, we certainly don't need it in your own store, that's for sure. Speaking of which, we are in a Joe Loves store. So talking about your new brand, if we can. Um, You had some time in the wilderness, but you've come back with a new iteration, I guess, of your your brand, of your life, of your story to tell. Well, after five years of not creating fragrance, the only thing I really wanted to do with my life was to create again. And I didn't want a hobby. I didn't just want to create a couple of kilos of fragrance and give it to my best mates. I wanted to build a brand. I knew I did. And I wanted to climb back where I felt that I had stepped away from. But we started round a kitchen table and what were we going to call ourselves? Who were we going to be? We had to make sure that the consumer wasn't confused. I didn't realise that the consumer didn't realise I'd stepped away anyway. So if I had known then the mountain I was going to climb, I would never have climbed it in that way. In what respect then? Is it is it simply the uh, trying to differentiate your name from a brand? Is that is that part of the consumer challenge? Well, yes, but when you are the person and you and you create fragrance and there's a brand there that bears your name, cream and black boxed but I'm not there any longer and then I'm over here. You have to be respectful of the people that bought the company, which I have always been and I would never do anything to harm it. But I didn't want to spend the rest of my life regretting not doing something that I am brilliant at. I'm not brilliant at so many things, but I can create fragrance like no one else in the world and I know I can. If someone had offered me a job, I would have taken it, but no one did. And so I was in that position of, okay, well, let's see if we can. And again, Gary and I gave ourselves a year. I think I ran back into retail. It was I was so hungry to be back in the marketplace. We opened a pop-up shop in Selfridges. I rushed into the packaging. The only thing that was right with the brand was the first four fragrances, which still today are there. Those were the only things that were right, but the packaging was these red boxes. And I was so desperate to say, I'm not trying to be the old Joe Malonite. This is who I am now. I created differently. I thought differently. I was much braver with the things I was doing. But of course, ultimately, at the end of the day, when you go out into the marketplace, the consumer had to understand that it was a different brand completely and they weren't connected. Who did you pick? I'm just interested, you mentioned this kitchen table situation and just comparing what a kitchen table situation would be like once you're a household name that everyone loves is so different to the kitchen table the first time round. It must have felt like Jesus' disciples, like special people chosen <laughs> by you. Who the hell did you pick? Um, there was and me, how special did there they There was feel? me and Gary and Josh. Um, so who's and, Josh? Uh, my son. Okay. And it was a wooden so kitchen. I would say they probably feel quite special already. Wooden then. kitchen table. And a couple of other people that joined us as as we sort of as we grew, it was that sort of family dream. And did I really want to do it again? That was the big question, you know. Because if I failed, I'd look a fool. But if I didn't try, I'd look a fool as well. You know, it was it was that sort of jump or or don't jump. But you know, you've got to you've got to take those decisions and decide. As someone who's got such specialty and like expertise in their actual craft, what have you done differently this time around in terms of the artistry, like bringing new practices and processes? So you've got a board right behind you on a fragrance paintbrush, which is something I'd never seen before. It's and the only one in the world. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, yes, what are these the new innovations that you're, you're playing with at the moment? I didn't start a business to create a new way of doing things. I, I started a business because of what I love to do. 
And what's different? I'm different. If you took anyone's life through a period of 40 years and you were creating any, any musician, any artist, anybody, your work changes and your, your creative sort of give to the world changes because you feel differently. And so that's what's different about me. Is it still the same heart? It's still that heart of integrity that wants to be true and honest, but also that, that I sort of feel... I feel braver. I feel so brave. And I'm not frightened any longer if someone says, oh, I don't like the smell of that. Or oh, like someone the other day said, is the paintbrush gimmicky? And I just was so insulted by that. But there are thousands and millions of other people that don't. They think it is creative. You know, if you decorating your body. I mean, for me, it's art for your nose. It's it's this expression, it's this means of communication, it's a means of being able to, to, to decorate your body with scent, with a paintbrush, and make it easy for people. I think it's another good insight just into how normal you are that you'd actually bother to be insulted by one person's opinion. I mean, this is the whole point, isn't it? You'd hope people don't like stuff, otherwise you won't have people that are really passionate about the positive side. If everyone just thinks everything's okay, you won't get any fans. Well, I think if you're worried about people who dislike what you do and disagree agree if you focus on that that's who you'll become I just choose not to and I just think to myself I don't I'm not even going to bother changing your mind if that's who you want to be then then go ahead so moving on from a fragrance paintbrush then your new product which is a graffiti body spray yes talk to me about that well it, it's uh, it's the second sister of the paintbrush so it's this whole art and I a couple of years ago I started to really fall in love with artists and art and their means of communication from everything from Banksy to Klimt to Pollock to Monet you name it I just fell in love with it and I wanted to do the same for fragrance and so graffiti is these body sprays they have barbarians in so they sound they sound like spray cans they come with stencils as well, so you're able to... You're, so you look at your body as though it's a canvas. Not, It's not a body any longer. It's this canvas every single day that you could paint it. So I might do a wonderful wash of pomelo all over you and then a fine pinstripe of pink vetiver or green, orange and coriander. Or I might confetti your body all over and spray it with sort of white rose and lemon leaves and then do tiny dots of orange blossom all the way over so it's just endless and the graffiti then enables you just to spray paint your body just like Banksy would spray paint a brick wall so it's more of a is it, I'm presuming it's more of a private experience though it's not you know not visible in different colors etc like no, you're no, tagging it's, it, a train yeah. no it's it's not it doesn't have but it's it's asking you to use your imagination so there are four there is uh, tuberose which is this brilliant red because it's rich and it's regal and punchy uh, there's fig, which is a beautiful aubergine sort of in, in your head, but it's just fragrance. Vetiver, which is a teal, and this gorgeous golden grapefruit, which is, for me, is it's all about that picture of woman in gold by Klimt. And if I look at that picture, this is the fragrance I smell. So for me, when, when I see something, I'm smelling a fragrance the whole time. And uh, graffiti body sprays, they come with stencils, so they have uh, stars, butterflies... This is about having fun. This is about being creative. And the great thing about this is inclusive. You don't have to be the smartest, wisest, richest, any of those things. You just have to want to be creative for five seconds. I'm just assuming listening to you talk about it, knowing what I do already know by listening to you through the podcast and also the animated smile on your face. This is not a company you're likely to sell. 
It doesn't sound like that you're ever going to, I mean, obviously never say never, but it sounds like you're pretty adamant to keep creating here. So no one's got a crystal ball. Look at the world we're living in right at this moment. No one knows what's going to happen tomorrow, next month. So I'm not going to rule anything out. But what I do know is I would never, ever, ever leave it. I would never be able to spend one more day away from not being creative or being a shopkeeper that I do know about myself. Mm, That's super interesting. Hey guys, this is Luke here, co-founder of Contour Space. Sorry to interrupt this awesome podcast, but I just wanted to tell you a bit more about us. We're a startup ourselves, helping awesome companies find amazing office spaces from start to finish, whether you're looking for a couple of desks to your next big HQ. We take care of the whole process from start to finish, and our service is completely free. Check us out on contour.space. So the final section is on lessons and failures. And really, it's a reflection for all intents and purposes on resilience, which is across all the interviews that we do is the number one common theme across every single leader, founder, entrepreneur, whatever you want to call them. Everyone cites the same thing. Now, this is actually why I've decided to save the section till last if we can, because four years after you sold to Estee Lauder, you faced the toughest challenge of your life, which was you were diagnosed with breast cancer. You had a double mastectomy. And you speak on your book how important your relationship with your husband, Gary, aka Gaza, uh, was and always has been. When I first saw Gaza, I was like, I didn't know you were in a relationship with Gaza. And then I had to do more reading. And I was like, well, thank God for that. It was going to be really awkward. So can you please share with us what it was like to go through that experience and also how going through it made you a better entrepreneur? Mm. Well, I think it made me a better person. I think any life-threatening situation that one goes through where... I was a 38-year-old woman. I had a two-year-old little little boy. And that night I was diagnosed with cancer and given, you know, under a year to live, nine months to live. And they told me to get my life in order. The, th- the first thing that I thought was not my business, which going back to your thing about entrepreneurs and motherhood, my first thought was my son and my husband. That was it. Would I ever see him grow up? Would I ever see him go to school? Would I ever see him go, you know, get married? He's now, by the way, six foot three and fences for Great Britain and is gorgeous and lovely. And it's been a privilege to be his mum for all those years. But how did it change me? It, it changed me in so many ways. It was funny, just after chemotherapy and coming out of the other end after surgery, I mean, I had so many complications. I was in intensive care, so I lost my hair. And I was half a person for a very, very long time. And then after that time, and I came out of it, and I was told, you know what, go back, reclaim your life, go and live your life again. And I didn't know what to reclaim. And I just lost the person of who I was. But the one good thing was I didn't tolerate anything any longer. It was... If I didn't want to sit and be with someone, I would just get up and walk out the room. I mean, I was, there was this sort of, I mean, I don't know what it, I don't know what you'd call it, rudeness or whatever. It was just, I don't want to be here. My I don't want to waste my time. My mum cancer and that was like her main takeaway. It's amazing. Um, like literally, that was the thing she just changed. She was like, I'm not going to spend time with people I don't want to anymore and she'll just leave. And I, I can't say I do that now, but, and I think as time goes on, you kind of find much more. But it, there was this real spring cleaning of my life. When I came back from cancer, that was when I made the decision to leave Joe Malone. So it was at that point that I thought, you know what, I'm not the same person. And it suddenly became a job to me and business. And I never had a job. I still to this day, I don't have a job. I love what I do. And that was why I really walked away. But then as I walked away from Joe Malone, I realised I'd made the biggest mistake of my life. That last day 
when I put the last lime basil and mandarin on the shelves and I turned that lock, I thought, what have you done? I made the biggest mistake of my life. Did you cry? What was the experience of leaving your brand? Like, I think it's a really interesting point to pick up on. Like, what is what is it like at the moment where you decide to walk away from something you built? I walked away from my best friend because my best friend was someone I spent day in, day out. It was a means of communication. It made me happy, fulfilled it. It changed my life in so many ways. And I just had made the wrong call for my life. But it's such a good lesson because we're human beings. Making mistakes is part of life. Making mistakes in business is part of business. And if you think you're going to go through your life without one mistake, you're a fool because mistakes sometimes make us who we are. Now, looking back, if I hadn't left, maybe I'd be in a completely different place right now, but I certainly wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be sitting at the cusp of and creating and and sort of doing some of the bravest things I've ever done in business right now. I wouldn't be doing that. So life often can bring you full circle and bring you back. And I have this big thing, don't make a life-changing decision on a bad day. And I made that life-changing decision on a bad day. How quick was it? Did you just sort of have a decision and just hand in your notice? Was it a, 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 you make it sound like it was a snap decision. Um, I was standing in a shop in Madison Avenue opening it and I was standing in the corner and I watched everybody else around me and it was nothing anyone did. It was my own emotions, my own fear that cancer would come back, my own fear that I wasn't adequate. I mean, how many times have we been through things in life where you feel you just don't belong anymore? I think if I'd given it six months, maybe I would have felt differently. Maybe not. Maybe I would have gone sooner. But it was a decision I made very quickly. And within a month, everything was, you know, so I'd signed all the all the forms. The press were announced. Lovely um, Sally Sussman came over from New York and was there. Leonard came over and gave me a lovely goodbye dinner. They were the loveliest family and the loveliest company in the world. And they tried to talk me out of it and I wouldn't listen. What about the period afterwards? What did you actually do to stay sane or did you struggle to stay sane? I didn't stay sane. I was so unhappy because I didn't have a job to go to. I didn't have a work and I'd worked every single day of my life. You know, I'm used to getting, I get up at six, seven and every morning, bang, bang, bang. And I, and I hit the day. And listen, I'm not judging anybody else. And I, this just wasn't right for me. I would go to a girl's lunch and then I would go to a charity lunch and then I would sit on a committee and then I'd sit on a board and I was just miserable. I I just couldn't be Joe. I made television shows. I would go into schools and teach children about how great it was to be a shopkeeper. And that was the only place I felt at home again when I was with kids and talking about being a shopkeeper and playing shop. And I would go home and I cried more in that five years than I ever did in the year of fighting cancer. When I fought cancer, I knew what to do every single day and I knew where I was going. All I was doing on those five years was just existing. Were you not creating at home for yourself? Were you not experimenting with new things just to keep yourself sort of engaged creatively? Um, I cooked. I cooked. I cooked more home-cooked foods and I would get this whole kind of thing. I remember once having a whole chapter on beetroot in my life and for a whole month, poor Gary and Josh had beetroot butter, beetroot toast, you name it, I did it with beetroot. But yeah, I did. No, I wasn't happy. And I tried and I tried and I tried and we travelled and we'd go and sit on a beach and all I would sit there and think about was I want to start another business. I didn't care what it was and 
Then I sat down to write a CV and thought, well, I'm going to get myself a job. I'm going to go and work for someone else. And I wrote my CV, and because of being dyslexic, my CV was not, I just felt so humiliated because it was left school, no qualifications, hobbies, making fragrance. You know, I'd only ever work for myself. So <laughs> who's going to give me a job? And I just sat there and just felt completely deflated and demoralized and my husband would say, just let's enjoy, let's just enjoy it. It won't be forever. And I just couldn't. Um, I rode horses and mountain. I went everywhere. You know that, that movie, Eat, Pray, Love? I kind of had my own interpretation of that, where I, would, I just would go and I, would, I was almost obsessive. So when I would find something, I would do it like seven days a week, 24-7, and then I'd get bored. But fragrance, fragrance, I've never got bored of fragrance. There's where, always... where did you send your CV? I'm just curious. I mean, for any employers listening, obviously you're not available anymore. So sorry for I the bad be. news. <laughs> you're be. not. I didn't send it. I screwed it up. I was so ashamed and thought, I can't speak languages. I've got no qualifications. I mean, I know how stupid that sounds right now. But when you have lost your confidence, you don't want to put yourself in a vulnerable position again. And that's what I felt it would have done. Now, when I say that, people come up to me and say, have you any idea? We would have given you a job at the drop of a hat, but we didn't know. I think this is the thing, right? People forget that public figures, founders, leaders, everyone, it's just, uh, you just still have the same human emotions as everyone else. So that imposter syndrome, that feeling of inadequacy is just a normal human behavior. I think it's great that you had that, to be honest, because just, again, proves that you're human, you must have had some ups and downs, though, like during that five year period of motion, as you say. So what do you do to find calm and balance in your life? Do you have routines? Do you meditate? Do you do yoga? What do you do? Well, I've got more calm and balance in my life now that I'm back creating. I, I mean, actually, my life is fabulous when I think about it now. So in those five years, I've got to be honest, I did lots of exercise, lots of, but nothing hit my soul. The minute you find that one thing in your life that makes you happy that's when life becomes really worth it. And, and I think for every single person in this world, there is something in your life that is just yours that you have to find. And some people find it when they're very young and some people find it when they're much older. But whatever it is, that is the Solomon's riches, what you have to hold on to. So for me, it is creating fragrance. Now, I, cook, I love to cook. I would adore, if I didn't do this, I'd either be a hairdresser or I'd have a food company. I'd definitely be involved with food in some way. Or growing grapes. I'd have a vineyard. I'd definitely do a wine. So, but I do Pilates. I ride horses. I love, love, love being with animals. So when I'm around animals, I am just the most docile, peaceful person around. So riding horses for me in the mountains clears my head. It's like soul food. I feel like my like everything just clears my head and I'm just at one with the horse riding through sort of mountains. And I can be on a beach, it can be anywhere. I love art, so I love walking around galleries and just with my own imagination. I don't like going with anyone. I love going with my son because we both we both will sit there with the headphones on and just totally absorbed in what we're in. And I love to learn. I love to see other people and, and see what, you know, I'm off to see elephants in Florida in a conservation park. In so it's still very adventurous now, just, uh, back, just back doing what you love, but getting to intersperse it with some of the other experiences you had yeah. in that wilderness, I guess, which is uh, possibly more fulfilling all round. What do you think was the toughest moment in your professional career then? I think, I think the moment is when I feel isolated. 
I can remember lots of like little times, but those moments in your business or in your, where you feel totally alone and you're running the business day to day, but you feel like there is no one there and your voice is no longer needed or, or, or wanted. Those, the, those are the moments in my life that are really hard. As to hard work, how do you get something done? Those never frighten me. They never frighten me if you haven't got enough money because it's like, I know how to make money. I'll go off and do it. I know how to pull everything together. But isolation for me is always the, the worst. Okay, well, we're going on a more uplifting uh, vibe then, um, away from an alone Malone. Uh, what was the most uplifting? Every time somebody walks out that door and buys a product, I love that. That's what I live for. Every time you see a fragrance like Orange Butterflies has launched today, I was here this morning putting that window in with the team, just seeing every single minute of success. And, and you know something, we work so hard at trying to make something successful. And sometimes in life, you never celebrate that moment. And I made this really strong decision last year that I would celebrate the moment. So every minute where you have a box ticked and you can celebrate something is a joy. As I understand it, each of the fragrances represents a moment in your life or something that you've experienced. So what is Orange Butterflies, for example? Um, it, it's, it's my imagination, uh, Orange Butterflies. So it, it, I was sitting in the south of France in a beautiful, beautiful place called Mujon, um, which is this little village on the hillside. And it's full of orange blossom in the air, that scent that's heady and heavy. And I imagined what happened if a sort of kaleidoscope of butterflies or every orange, gold, bronze, yellow flew down and just settled? And what happens if I just clap my hands and they took flight, but they took the scent of the orange blossom with them? And it's that moment. So it's the scent of orange blossom, but it's got air all the way through it. Whilst you were explaining that, I was imagining the process of then trying to get that from inside your brain into an actual fragrance. Can you just explain... Before we go, because now this is going to sate my curiosity and I'm not going to be able to leave without finding out. What's it like inside the, is it a lab that you make? These? Yes. Yeah. So what is, it, what is it like inside a lab? Is it manic? No, it's very calm. It's, it's like a piece of music. That's what you're trying to construct. So you're, you've created a tune for your nose. So imagine you humming a tune in your head. Well, imagine it just through the notes that you're smelling. So what you're trying to do is you're putting bass notes in, middle notes, top notes, and you're trying to get everything into several accords so all the notes are put together. So it's a very calm, very cool place because it can't be too hot and you get headachey. Everyone's in white lab coats. But I spend a lot of my time just sitting at a table with papers and sometimes little pegs that you hang on a line and you say so you're smelling them and you take note by note by note. And then I just twirl them round like that. And, and then I allow my imagination to just take flight and, and talk to me and not try and control anything, but just allow the fragrance to come to life as it wants to. And how many people are in the lab with you at the same time? It can be two. It can be a dozen. It can be none. I mean, it's it, it's not my lab. I will go in and work in somebody else's lab. But I also sit at the kitchen table still. I'll sit very quietly. I work my nose every single day for an hour. Mm-hmm. And I sit there. <laughs> is that like a musician doing his scales? Yes. It yeah, it is. It's the most natural thing in the world for me. And if I don't do it, I feel like I've missed out. I mean, that's just blowing me away. <laughs> Work my nose. Yeah. What I mean to say is, obviously, so does everyone. That's <laughs> perfectly normal behaviour, Joe. A 
Okay, achieving great success often means you've sacrificed things along the way. What do you think you've sacrificed to get here? I haven't sacrificed anything that I feel resentful about. I was a young mum through building a business, but I look at my son, who is one of the most down-to-earth, grounded, fulfilled human beings, and I've loved motherhood, and I've loved, you know, being a working mum. I don't think I have sacrificed. I think I've just gained so much in life. I've had a, a few ups and downs and mishaps and mistakes, but as I said, the, you know, it's the doorstep to success often, and it comes with the territory. You don't sound like someone who's got regrets, so to speak. I don't regret anything that's happened to me in life. I regret some of the people I've met and some of the people I've trusted. And other than that, I don't have regrets. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given on your journey? Have you had mentors? No, no, I'm not. But I've had friends. I've had really good, strong people in my life who have really given uh, their wisdom. My husband, I think, is probably the, you know, the, the one who I've gained most from. Rosemary Bravo who was amazing, Oprah Winfrey once when I went and had lunch with her, I said to her, if you could give me one piece of advice, what would it be? And she said, own everything you do, stamp your identity and your character. And I've lived every day with that piece of advice. I think that was a really good, strong, solid piece. Um, and just along the way, be who you are. I've never, I've never pretended to be anything I'm not. And when I do, it makes me very unhappy. So I'm going to, just going to be Joe. And if you love me, great. And if you don't, I'm sorry. Well, on that note, what's the best piece of advice you could give to people that want to create a uh, brand around their unique talent? I think for me, it's, it, it's three things. It's, as I said, find, find that thing that really makes you tick. It doesn't have, always have to be a business, but... But just find the thing that makes you really happy and fulfilled. Don't be scared of the discipline that needs to go around that creativity. Because otherwise, if all of us were just being creative without any discipline foundations, it, it would be a very different place. So the discipline is there around it to fulfill that creativity and really take it on. And the last thing is opportunity. Once you've got those two things in place, go find the opportunity. And actually, a society... I believe our responsibility to the next generation is to provide those opportunities for them. Okay, that's beautiful advice. So last question. What company, entrepreneur or person do you admire or aspire to be? Like who does Joe Malone look up to? Coco Chanel would be top of my list. And if I could sit and have dinner, I would love to hear her story. Diane Fossey, who went to work with Gorillaz in Gorillaz in the Mist, the movie. A man called Jesse Owens, who was a runner, was from Alabama and just had so much resilience in him. Steve Jobs, Florence Nightingale, Anya Highmarsh. I mean, it just goes on and on. I love entrepreneurial stories. I love the story of someone that doesn't sit there and moan, that gets up and puts one foot in front of the other and says, I will. And um, so any of those stories inspire me. Amazing. Thank you very much, Joe. I'm sure you are the type of person a lot of, well, I know for a fact you're the person a lot of people cite when I ask them that question. So thank you very much for sharing your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. 
Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Simon LaFosse, the founder of LaFosse Associates. We're a young, high-growth and co-owned business, and we're experts in attracting talent. If you want to build a great team or you just want advice, please get in touch. We run free seminars and we'd love to see you there. Thanks for your time. So that's a wrap for Series 2 of Secret Leaders. We hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah, it seems a while since our first guests of the series with uh, David Buttress all the way to Joe Malone. We've been thrilled to have some amazing guests in this series from the founders of Just Eat to Just Giving. We hope there's been something for just about everyone. It has indeed. Rich and I are now working on Series 3, so if you haven't already, please subscribe either on iTunes or Spotify because our guests want to know how many subscribers we have, and we've got well over 100,000 now, we're proud to say, but every single subscription does help. Or you can also subscribe to our email list on our website, secretleaders.com, which if you didn't know, has every episode we've put out and also some other fun facts. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsors for this series, Calm.com, Contour Space and LaFosse Associates. Thank you also to Jennifer Osman and Harry Morton, who worked tirelessly behind the scenes to make this series what it is. So until next time, thank you from both of us. See you soon. And remember, for Series 3, tune in or you'll miss out.